Yes, hello. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and this week I'm joined by the man who invented the phrase inverted wingers, which you may or may not have known. I think you probably didn't know that, listener. Is Michael Cox from The Athletic. How are you doing, Michael? I'm very well, thank you, Ali. And yeah, that is 100% true. So thank you for... Uh... Yeah, bringing that up. And now it's being used by all and sundry, including Arsenal fan TV. Uh, the other phrase that you tried to coin, central wingers, is that right? That one didn't catch on quite as much. No, I didn't take off that one. I quite liked it. It was when it was when there was a period where everyone had been, been playing 4-3-3 and then they started trying to play 4-2-3-1. So they kept on fielding kind of former wingers as a number 10. And they all kind of drifted into wider positions rather than staying centrally. And I thought that was quite interesting. Ashley Young was a good example of that at uh, at Aston Villa. Um, no, that, that one didn't take off, but 50% uh, phrase completion rate. So I'm fine with that. Yeah, not too bad at all. I think as far as I can tell, my only contribution to football lexicon so far has been the mostly ironic phrase Bamford Island uh, from last season, which is... <laughs> somewhat taken off amongst a certain portion of the Leeds fan base. That's really all I can offer. What about you, uh, Tom Warville? You're on the line as well, the athletics analytics guru. Um, anything that you've contributed to in terms of football language? I don't think in terms of language, no. I, I do feel that I steal a lot of phrases from other sports, much to the <laughs> the anger of one Michael Cox. Um, but no, I'm, I'm more of a, a stealer than an, than an artist, I guess. Stealing bases and phrases. What have you guys been working on on site this week? What have you been writing, for example, Michael? I, I dare say you had plenty to say after the Manchester City-Liverpool game on the weekend. Yeah, there's analysis of that up on the site. I thought it was quite interesting tactically, the way Liverpool played with the 4-2-4 and how they tried to stop De Bruyne. don't think they did particularly well because he created quite a few chances. Um, also something on James Rodriguez is coming up on the site tomorrow. So that's Thursday. Um, and then, yeah, a few longer term features. Hoping to do an interview with a, uh, a former legend of the game next week, but I won't say who it is in case it doesn't happen. One thing that Coxie's done recently, which he didn't plug, but he, I think he should have, was we recently did a, a mailbag. I think it was Michael Jack Lang and Jack Pitbrook kind of answering a few questions about the season so far, which I really enjoyed. And I really appreciated Coxie's team of the season uh, in there. I thought there were some, some good choices that the others didn't pick. So um, yeah, that's that's another plug for your work, Michael. You're welcome. Thank you. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed Jack Pitbrook saying that Mane had been the best player in the league, but then not putting Mane in his uh, team of the year so far. I was baffled by that one, but uh, yeah, check it out. Well, there's Tom Warville being kind to a colleague and Coxie throwing one under the bus there. Tom, Tom what, what have you been working on this week on the site? A couple of things. The one that I'm most looking forward to coming out is a piece with James McNicholas about Arsenal's woes in possession. As you probably know by now, Arsenal are really struggling to create shots and, and create good quality chances. Um, and me and James kind of, well, I dug into the numbers and, and with the help of James kind of realised that it's more an issue with Arsenal around getting the ball regularly into the final third. I think that we looked at some novel possession-based stats to, to try and attack this. And I think we found out that, you know, this Arsenal side get the ball into the final third far less than, than Wenger's sides used to and, and even kind of less than Arsenal did under Emery's yeah some some interesting stuff in there which hopefully we'll be able to use and, and replicate for other teams at some point as well all sorts of good stuff on the athletic site and app that's also where you can listen to all the athletic podcasts 
ad-free if you would like to listen to us without advertising. I would also recommend checking out the new podcast by Mark Chapman and Matt Slater, which had Adam Crafton on their first episode, the Business of Sport podcast, well worth a listen. That's what's available to you if you become a subscriber of The Athletic. If you're not already and you head to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking, you can make the most of the current offer, which is just £1 a week for your annual subscription. So do make sure you are signed up on site as we get stuck into our topic for this week, which, Michael, I would like you to attempt to introduce. Well, it's quite interesting looking at the league tables from across Europe at the moment because there's some surprise names up there in the top uh, four or five positions in a few leagues. So we're going to be doing a quick whistle-stop tour of uh, five uh, teams who are doing really well, who have overachieved at the start of this season. And uh, I guess basically discussing whether it's a flash in the pan or whether we think they can sustain a challenge for the Champions League places or maybe even the title. Spot on. We are taking a look at five of Europe's overachievers. And when I was making my notes earlier, it struck me that these days the word overachiever in some contexts has developed almost a negative connotation. Uh, But we are very much using the dictionary definition. We're not trying to have a subtle dig at these teams. Uh, That is someone who does more than they are expected to do and who is more successful than others. We're going to look at some of Europe's early overachievers. And and Tom Warville, it's worth pointing out that there's often quite a tedious back and forth over the phrase, the table does or doesn't lie, the league table that is in football. Um, I suppose on one part, it, 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 it can't lie, does it? It certainly reflects the results of the completed matches at any stage of the season. But I think what we would mean by that, right, is that it also masks quite a lot of contextual and juicy nuggets, which can maybe help us be predictive and work out what might happen from here. Is it, does that tally with how you think about that that discussion? Yeah, I think that's pretty much bang on. Um, the, yeah, like you said, the, the table never lies. It, it it does tell tell you what's happened in games, tells you results, goal score, goal difference, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah, it it kind of does mask or. Um, doesn't help bring to the forefront whether the teams and their position in the table are actually kind of deserved. And I think that for that reason, that's why we we use all these fancy underlying numbers to try and get a grasp of is what the table is telling us the truth or, um, you know, should we expect things to change in the coming weeks? To that end, let's talk about our first team. That is Southampton in the Premier League. Now, thanks to Saints' Friday night win against Newcastle United, they hit the top of the Premier League for the very first time in 32 years. Sadly, the rest of the league then played their matches from that weekend, which does tend to happen. And now, as we record, Saints are fourth in the table. But what a marvellous sort of half a day that was. And what an excellent start to the season it's been. A very interesting team to chat about that I don't think we have zoomed in on on this podcast yet. Uh, Michael, we can't do a deep dive on these teams today. What we want to do is is, um, give an overview, I suppose, a couple of interesting bits of detail that you and Tom have spotted. And then the listeners can go away and delve a little deeper. When it comes to Southampton, they are in fourth after eight games. It's a great start to the season. What are they doing so well? I think more than anything else, they just play as if they really, really know what they're doing on the pitch. And I know that's a general thing to say, but they use quite an unusual system. It's 4-4-2 or 4-2-2-2, depending on how you want to look at it, with the two wide players coming inside. 
And their passing combination is just really good, very purposeful. I like the way that they use the central midfielders, Ward-Prowse and Romeo, who basically stay in position. There's good rotation out wide. Armstrong and Redmond, usually the wide players coming in field. The fullbacks overlap very well in time their runs. Ings and Adams, as, as we know, have a very good relationship up front. Ings was out for uh, the weekend win or the Friday night win against Newcastle, but they cope with that with Walcott playing up front, who I thought did quite well. And they just look like a really cohesive side. And the thing I like about Southampton's uh, run of success is, you know, it's not dependent upon a couple of summer signings. It's not like they sat their manager and they've started playing a different way. They've believed in the process. And it's a process that has been in place for, well, well over a season now. And it's included a period where Southampton were not getting results. But I think when you watch them, you, you really sense that something... Something good was in the pipeline and that's come to fruition. And I think they deserve a lot of credit as a club. Obviously, Hasan Hootel has done uh, a very good job with a number of players, I think, who have improved since he's been there. And they just play good football. So it's just nice to see them up there at the top of the league. And Tom, what do the early season numbers say about this Southampton team? What they do well, perhaps what they aren't doing quite as well and, uh, and, and how you might think this sort of form will continue or otherwise uh, over the coming weeks and months? Yeah, I really liked your, your definition of the start of what an overachiever is. And if I could tweak it slightly, if I may, I think we can <laughs> say an overachiever in this context is someone who has scored more than they have expected to do so, desperately uh, compared to other teams in their league. Southampton are definitely a side who are overachieving in terms of expected goals at the moment and in such a, a small number of games. I mean, we've only seen eight games so far this season. They are kind of overperforming at one end and underperforming at the other. So they've scored 15 goals so far from 8.1 non-penalty expected goals, which uh, that's a, a huge return and, and definitely definitely backed by the likes of James Ward-Prowse's free kicks. Um, Danny Ings has scored a, a few goals as well, which um, you'd think that won't be kind of from repeatable situations later in the season. But then at the back, they've conceded 12, whereas their expected goals is, is closer to nine. It's, it's currently 8.5. So they have conceded a few more than, than, again, the numbers suggest they should have. So I think that overall, this is a team which are slightly higher on the table than perhaps they should be. But in a season in which there's going to be a lot of games, a lot of injuries in a short period of time, I think Southampton's way of playing um, is very much going to depend on kind of whether they can keep their own players fit, but could be really, really damaging to the opposition who just are going to get run into the ground uh, by them. That's an interesting point, isn't it? One of their key strengths is their pressing, which comes obviously from Ralph Hassenhutl. It's it's not something new, but it's something that's working very well for them. But you've kind of raised the point there that potentially with the busier schedule than general seasons, that could but be an issue for them just in terms of physicality, in terms of, of being able to keep that up over the course of a season. But Michael, in terms of that pressing philosophy, I know that you've been enjoying Hassan Hootel's press and hustle. Yeah, definitely. I think their performance against Newcastle in that Friday night game was just incredible for that. I can't remember the last time I saw a game where, you know, it was just decided by one side pressing so well. I mean, they created four really good chances from winning the ball high up, including for the two goals. You know, first of all, Almiron was robbed by Walcott and Walker Peters and Walcott crossed for, for Che Adams to volley home. The second one, Longstaff, or one of the Longstaffs, can't remember which one, uh, robbed on the edge of the area by Armstrong who fired in. And there was a, another couple of really good chances. And, uh, you know, watching that game, I was almost getting annoyed at Newcastle for being so dopey in possession. But obviously you have to give Southampton great credit for that. And it's interesting as well, like what Tom says about the nature of this season, because obviously Southampton do depend on pressing and, and that can be tiring. But, 
you know, they don't have European distractions compared to the top clubs. They're out of the League Cup already. They've got a pretty young squad. So I think they're just more likely to be able to sustain their press throughout the course of the season than a side like Manchester City or Liverpool, who already with kind of back-to-back-to-back Champions League games, you know, look pretty tired at the weekend. I certainly haven't seen that kind of tiredness from Southampton so far. It does look like they've got a pretty tough stretch of games coming up. Uh, Tom, we're not really in the in, in the industry on this pod of uh, opinions for opinion's sake and looking for clicks and, uh, and, and big headlines, but I am going to just put a little bit of pressure on you both with each of these teams and ask you um, just, you know, we're about a quarter of the way through the season. It's a good time to ask uh, based on these overachievers. Is it a flash in the pan or is this robust? I'm not suggesting that you tell me Southampton will finish in the top four this season, um, but would you lean towards them challenging for seventh or eighth spot or do you see them dropping back down towards where they finished up last season? I guess I, I can go first. I do think that, I mean, Southampton's numbers don't look good enough at the moment for a top four finish, definitely. Um, I think they're probably more in the the kind of six to eight range and it very much depends down the stretch just whether they can can keep this energy and, and keep the, the pressure up, really. I do think that We've seen a, a bit of fortune for them um, so far this season with, uh, I mean, only really the the main injury impact has been come to Danny Ings with his knee injury. Um, although Che Adams has actually had a really good season this year. He's, he's got more expected goals than Ings so far and he's getting into really good scoring chances. And we saw from the Newcastle game, he, he you know, he can finish as well at times. Um, so yeah, for, for me, I definitely think that they're probably more in the, the six to eight range than the, uh, the one to six range. Agree with that, Michael? Yeah, I was going to say the same. I was going to be a bit bolder and say, yeah, they'll qualify for the Europa League, which would probably be seventh place. Yeah, I think they're a good side. I think that they just, like I say, they, they have a really clear intention of how they want to play, which I don't think is the case for all the top sides. And another thing I really like about them, which is completely irrelevant and not the kind of numbers that Tom Warville de- uh, deals in, but <laughs> their shirt numbers are fantastic. So when they've got their first choice 11 out, nine of them, wear one to 11 shirt numbers. The two exceptions are uh, Jan Bednarek, who should be wearing five to complete the kind of one to 11, but can't have that because Jack Stevens wear it, uh, wears it. So he's wearing 35. And the other one is Stuart Armstrong, who doesn't wear seven because Shane Long still has seven. So he wears 17. So even the two exceptions still have the, the, the you know, the number that they should be wearing contained within their actual shirt number. And I think they deserve great credit for that. Very close to Cox's wet dream that. Uh, let's move on to our second overachiever. That is Sassuolo in Serie A. And I'm really excited to, to hear about these guys because it's an amazing story in general and in recent history specifically Sassuolo's rise from the regional leagues to Serie A where they are well established now in in their eighth season Um, their highest finish sixth in 2015-16 they finished eighth last season I think there are some parallels with them and Hoffenheim for example if there are listeners who know their German football history but less so about their uh, Italian football history but this season As we record, we find them in second place on 15 points from seven Serie A games, unbeaten as well. Michael, when we talk about Sassuolo, I think we have to talk about the manager, Roberto De Zerbi. My notes here, detailed as ever, just say cool tactics, which I'm hoping you're going to tell me more about. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think that's unfair. I mean, they just play really fun football. De Zerbi is, um, I'd say, from the new generation of Italian managers, uh, which 
I would say means basically he likes attacking football. He wants to outscore the opposition. He doesn't mind games where they might ship three or four occasionally because he thinks that's, uh, you know, um, a risk and reward thing. He wants to attack. I think there's some similarities with Maurizio Sarri and the way that he played at Napoli. By that, I mean, I think they counterattack with possession, if that makes sense. Their, their build-up play in defensive positions is quite slow because they want to tempt the opposition forward. But when they can do that, they're really good at then just transferring the ball through the press really, really quickly, which is what Sarri did brilliantly at times at Napoli. Yeah, they're just an exciting side to watch. I think they they can overload the wide areas uh, effectively. They use the fullbacks well with late runs. And the midfielders sometimes do a bit of an Ajax thing where they drift out wide and, and help play combinations down the flanks. And they're just really exciting to watch. I mean... Yeah, they're, they're up there with Atalanta, I would say, as probably the two most exciting sides in Syria at the moment. Wow, sold. I mean, uh, James Horncastle wrote a great piece on Deserbi last season and specifically about what you've spoken about there, the, the passing through the press and how much Pep Guardiola admires that and has noticed that and watches Sassuolo games um, when he is studying other sides. Tom, if you look at the numbers, the underlying data, what does it look like Sassuolo are doing so well that they've started the season unbeaten and, and currently second in the table? I think that, like Michael said, they are a team that thrives a lot with um, the possession that they have and they've actually turned that into some pretty good chances so far this season. They're kind of the fifth highest team for expected goals um, so far and they've scored 18, which is, is table-topping and joint with Atalanta. But that is obviously with a fair slice of luck um, given that they've actually you know, only got 13.1 XG. But I do think overall, like this is a team that has really improved from last season. I mean, they, they topped the table in Syria also for the share of possession that they have. So yeah, like Michael said, they very much kind of try and draw the opposition out and try and dominate games. And I think there's also some some parallels to perhaps how kind of Leicester play and also how they, they kind of look as a team. I mean, as you've got... Um, Caputo up front, who is very much the the Jamie Vardy mould of you know an older striker who is the team's focal attacking point. I think then you've you've got mainly a, a quite a younger squad really, or at least it's not a squad that's packed with with older players as can be the case in Syria. But it's not all kind of rainbows and lollipops, I'm afraid, because um, in their game against Udinese at the weekend, the game finished and it was uh, had a combined six shots in total and 0.2 XG for both sides. So um, although Sassuolo do have the kind of fundamentals to be a fun attacking uh, team, a fun team to watch, sometimes that can uh, end in quite a dour affair. I'll give them that one. Uh, this is the joint top scoring team in the league with Atalanta. They've scored four on three separate occasions this season and, and three as well against uh, Torino in a three-all draw. Coxie, they, they must have some quite exciting players like Atalanta. Uh, who stands out for you in this Sassuolo team? Yeah, probably still Berardi, who, who plays on the right flank and always cuts inside onto his left foot, a kind of Iron Robin style wide forward. As Tom mentions, I just love Capuso. I think he's a, a classic Italian number nine. I think they still call them bombers, don't they, in, in Italy? I'm not sure whether that pronunciation is right, but just your kind of classic target man who stays in the middle and, and basically waits for crosses. I mean, you do seem to get quite a lot of these players in Syria who just thrive really late on in their kind of mid-30s almost um, and I think the combination between those two players or the contrast between those pl two players you know a really quick exciting winger and a classic penalty box striker works really well I mean this maybe isn't something that you know Tom would look at and thinks you know it, it looks sustainable but they've also scored some fantastic goals a lot of long-range goals I mean Berardi 
is, is smacked in a couple from outside the box. Midfielder Burabia scored a great free kick a few weeks ago. And my favourite would be Vlad Kirikez, who people may remember from Tottenham Hotspur in the VS Boas era, I think, scored an absolutely incredible goal against Torino. I mean, as good a goal as you'll see in open play from centre-back. Just strode forward and thumped it into the top corner. So yeah, they are exciting. They score good goals. Their their build-up play is good and there's moments of individual magic. And I don't know whether you're going to ask me for a prediction on this one, but um, I think I'd say the seventh. uh, Sorry, I'd say the same. I'd say seventh because I think, you know, you look at last season, they finished eighth. But peculiarly, they were 11 points off seventh place. So they were never really going to finish in the in the top seven. But I think they'll be in the mix this year. I think they'll probably fall away a little bit. But I think they'll be challenging the uh, the more traditional sides at the top of the table. I think seventh is is a good shout. Um, I do wonder if that gap between kind of Sassuolo and, and the rest is going to uh, maintain this season, though. We saw increasing goal scoring in the Premier League is up. And it's definitely the case in Serie A as well. If you look at, I mean, I, I looked at the expected goals figures so far for all of the you know, teams in, in Serie A and compared them across their last three or four seasons. And the kind of the best team up until this season we've seen is, is Atalanta yes, last year in, in 1920. And so far this season, we've had four teams better than Atalanta per game and three just there, just behind them as well. So we've, the likes of Roma, Milan, Inter, Atalanta, Sassuolo and, and, and Juve this season are all kind of firing on all cylinders. So if you're looking for attacking football, that's definitely your league. And one stat which I, I particularly liked that I found was that under uh, Gennaro Gattuso this season, Napoli are averaging 19 shots per game, which is the most in Europe. And absolutely not what I would expect from a, a Gattuso team. There you go. The, the only thing I would add before we move on, they have had a pretty generous schedule, Sassuolo, so far. They've played Napoli. That's the only side they've taken on currently in the top half of the division. And I think there's one thing we, we can say with some certainty about Serie A is that the teams at the bottom do tend to be fairly poor. So bigger tests to come for Sassuolo, but certainly a team that I'll be keeping a, a much closer eye on after that. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Right, time to move on to our third team. The first time we've spoken about them on the Zonal Marking podcast, it is Rangers who are at the very top of the Scottish Premiership as we record nine points clear of Celtic, albeit Celtic have two games in hand. And for this section, we're delighted to be joined by Jordan Campbell, who covers Rangers for The Athletic. Thank you so much for hopping on with us, Jordan, and making your debut on the ZM pod. No pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Good time to be covering the Gers. After an 8-0 win against Hamilton, Rangers 19 games unbeaten in all competitions. Their league record, 14 games, 12 wins and two draws with a plus 34 goal difference, having scored 37 and conceded just three. Absolutely astonishing numbers. Of course, the, the wider context is that Celtic have won the last nine Scottish Premiership titles, but Rangers setting the early pace here. And a, a simple question to start with, really, uh, Jordan. Some people will have been surprised to see Rangers come out the block so quickly after a, a period of Celtic dominance. Did you see this coming? Was this expected for Rangers under Steven Gerrard this year? Well, I think if you look at how Rangers started last season, it's not too dissimilar. I think they're actually only a point better off than they were at this this time last season. And I think they'd actually scored more goals last season, which is surprising considering you look at the 
some of the score lines in recent weeks. I'm um, obviously 8 0 against Hamilton, but from where Rangers were in late February, early March, when they dropped points in five like the seven, eight games after the winter break, they seemed to completely collapse. I think a lot of people were a bit sceptical and a bit unsure as to whether that was something that, you know, Gerard and his coaching staff would actually be able to turn around because, you know, Hamilton actually beat Rangers. I think it was nearly eight months to the day, actually, um, that they won 8 0. They actually beat them 1 0 at Ibrox. I mean, Rangers had 31 shots. It was, rid- it was ridiculous how they still managed to actually throw away the game. But you just seen, like, a real drop off in form. And Gerard was saying, you know, after they lost to Hearts in the, in the Scottish Cup and after they suffered other losses, that, you know, he couldn't really put his finger on it. And they were trying and trying to change things tactically and bring in a few players. But it just seemed like there wasn't really an answer and I think a lot of people were wondering, you know, is that just naturally, is it something that's, you know, not going to be able to solve itself? But I, th- I think the pandemic actually helped them reset a bit and uh, they've definitely come back a lot stronger because since Gerrard's came in, they've not had a lot, of, a lot of time to actually walk on the training ground before the season started and that's just due to being in the first round of qualifying. So I think this summer's actually been a lot healthier for them in terms of working on their sort of foundations and having eight, nine weeks before, I think it was even more than that actually, before they actually started the league campaign. So I think you're seeing that for the fact that they're just so dominant and at the back they're, based, they're hardly even conceding any major chances at all. So it's built on solid foundations but I think you're seeing a lot more variety going forward as well. Yeah, I guess that's important context to know about the drop-off last season and I, and I suppose it, it means that rather than getting carried away about the start to this season, there might be a bit of a sort of once bitten, twice shy approach where, you know, the fans are kind of waiting with bated breath to see if the drop-off happens again. Are there signs, do you think, it sounds like there are, that they could avoid uh, such a drop-off in the second half of the season? You mentioned some some changes tactically that make you think this team looks a little more robust. Yeah, I think so. But I would say the, the biggest difference from last season to this season is the strength and depth of the squad. You know, it's still a 28-man squad, and I think a big a big part of Rangers' aim this summer was to sort of reduce the, the number of fringe players. So you saw that when they got they released was it eight players, I think, in the summer. Players like Andy Halliday and John Flanagan, who were backups but didn't really fit the, the style of play. So if Borna Barisic or James Tavernier, who have combined for like a ridiculous number of assists for fullback the last couple of seasons. If they were absent, you just noticed a, a real difference in the style of play and they were unable to really get that continuity. So the same the same goes for Alfredo Morelos as well. There was such an over-reliance on him that when his form dropped off after uh, the winter break, I think he, only, he failed to score in the league. He only scored once in the cup. And that, this was a guy who was on course for 30 goals before in the one half of the season and had, broke a, had broken the Europa League goal scoring record. Um, you know, like for him just to completely, you know, his form just to drop off the, a cliff was just a, like a, a major part, part of why they weren't able to keep it up. But also they had no one really else to, to replace him because Jermaine Defoe struggled with injuries in the second half of the season. So now you look at it and you've got Kemal Roof who's capable of being more than number 10 or are playing just off the striker. You've got Cedric Itton, who is offering them a more direct approach in Defoe's back fit as well. Um, so even in midfield as well, since they brought Zungu back in, you know he's he's going to offer more depth in there as well. So I, I think you look at it and you think there's not going to be the same players 
knows many players are going to have to play nearly every minute, every game. Um, you're still seeing Golds and Tavernier and Kent are sort of ever presence, but apart from that, there's there's constant rotation. You're seeing about four to five changes for Thursday to Sunday, so I think that's one of the the main things that you probably won't or Rangers will be hoping they don't see the same burnout next season. Mm. Uh, next. After season. Let's talk Steve Gerrard, the manager. Uh, there'll be a lot of people interested in in how he's getting on and in how he's developing as uh, a manager early on in his career. Uh, managers, as we've discussed often on this podcast, sometimes get pigeonholed either as a tactician or as a, a motivator, a man manager. Uh, and sometimes uh, they can be more than, than just one thing. Uh, what do you think are the most impressive aspects of Gerard as a manager from what you've seen? Uh, tactics, player development, which I suppose is proxy for coaching, uh, man management, recruitment. What, what, what do you think? I don't, I'm not asking you to pigeonhole him, but just explain what you believe to be his strengths as a manager. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Gerard's been quite open and said it himself is that, you know, he is, he is probably a, a more a manager in the traditional sense, you know, not to pigeonhole him, as you said, but, you know, I think you can see that, that the way he formed his coaching staff when he came in, he, he, he sort of lent on advice other people about what he would need to to sort of pad out his strengths and make sure that he had a rounded coaching staff so you know Mike Gary McAllister's obviously there as a sort of wise head um but then he's got Michael Beale who you know I don't think he'd really worked with at Liverpool but um was highly thought of so when he he came back for Sao Paulo and the job came up at Rangers then he was someone who from speaking to people at Melwood like had been told that he was a he was a good operator and he would help you know Basically, I think Gerard's always got a saying where he says, "You know, I, I know how I want it to look." Um, so I think he's got a clear, a clear thought in his mind about the the principles of how he wants his team to play to be, you know, solid defensively and be quick on the counter and, and be dominant. And I think Bill's the guy on on the on the training pitch who, who really implements that. So he's well known to do a lot of most the majority of the coaching, and and Gerard's someone who who set standards and. You know, he's got a real presence. You speak to some players who have played for him and they say he's got that sort of aura about him, as you would expect for, for somebody who's obviously um, been such a an esteemed player. I think it's a, I think they've got a good balance in the in the uh, the management setup and uh Gerard's you know, look at Jordan Jones and, and Edmondson who get caught up um, breaking the, the COVID rules, you know. He's somebody who's no really takes a while to earn your earn his trust, and and I don't think it takes as it takes quite as long to lose it. Um, someone like Jordan Jones, a classic case. Of, he made he made one error, which was to get sent off against Celtic, albeit injured himself and for four months in the process of doing it. Um, but then that was him. He never played in the league, never started in the league for over a year. So it's very much that you know if you don't earn his trust or. Or prove that you're trustworthy, then, or that you, he can rely on you. Then, I don't think he he hesitates in pulling you at the team, and it might be a while before you get back in. Jordan, one thing we've spoken about in the past um, for a, a piece, which as of yet hasn't quite come to fruition, but hopefully we'll do it at some point later in the season, um, is around kind of how Rangers' style of play has changed in terms of getting far slower. Um, and it's kind of my understanding that last season was very much. Obviously, we've said about the the reliance on Morelos, and I mean this season per ninety wise, Scott Arfield has scored more than him, which I think you'd be hard pressed to find a uh, you know a headline striker in a team scoring less than Scott Arfield in the season gone past. Um, so I'd be interested to know kind of what that that changes in in the back. Is it just that Rangers have 
become a lot more proficient at breaking down set defenses? Um, or is it a, the way that they're playing is that they can kind of avoid that altogether and, and try and actually play more on the counter and kind of break quickly after kind of drawing the, the opponent in? Uh, yeah, well, I was looking at that actually because, you know, watching Rangers in Europe and watching them domestically is, you know, two different, it's like watching two different teams at times because, you know, obviously you're averaging over 70% of possession in Scotland and then in Europe they're a lot tighter. Um, but uh, in Scotland, certainly that's always been the, the the problem that they found is consistently breaking down teams. Like the first half of last season, they proved they could do it and, and they're proving again they can do it. But I think even when you compare this season so far to last season, um, it just seems a lot more fluid and a lot more fluent. Um, I think that's partly to do with a sort of relaxing of the, the structure of how Rangers are playing. So you look at James Tavernier, who is absolutely flying just now. I think he scored 12 goals and five of them are open play um, for a right-back. Him and, Tav- him and Barisic on the left-hand side are, are key to Rangers, how to play. But they're basically, they're basically playing with seven attackers now, and, and they'll usually just have the two centre-backs and and uh, either Jack or Davis sort of sitting and guarding against a counter attack. But I mean, you said that about you know, are they finding it easier? I would I would say they're definitely finding it easier. And to me, that just comes from the fact that somebody like Joe Rebo was was playing in like a flat midfield three last season, which was probably quite similar to Liverpool in terms of it was functional. But it always felt like at times it was a bit overkill to have Jack Davis and Glenn Kamara in the midfield, and even when. Aribo was slotted in there to try and add a bit more dynamism. It felt like you were sort of restricting him by putting him in, putting him in that role. But now they've sort of came up with us. I want to call it a hybrid. But you know, at the weekend there was Jack was playing as a six, Arfield as an eight, and Aribo was sort of just allowed to to roam off the left hand side. And again, that's another aspect the Rangers play that's changed is that Tavernier was sitting a bit deeper last season and allowing Barisic to to go higher up and, and use his delivery, but. Tavernier just looks like he's been he's been let off the leash and this is definitely the best form he's been in at Rangers, I think. Um so you've seen him join in. A lot of the play will go down the left hand side now and then they'll look to switch it later on. So that's something that's that's helping a lot. But I also think I Morelos is he's still not hit top form, but there was a, there was signs the signs last last couple of weeks that he he's getting there again. But I people like Kemal Roof and and uh Yanis Hadji and, you know, players that can be frustrating but have clearly got the ability to open up teams in the final third they've definitely got more options in the final third now so I would say they're a better place to do that I honestly thought we were going to get through this whole segment without mentioning Liverpool but Jordan you couldn't <laughs> quite make it um, no, I was I was listening to that bit um, smiling sort of getting ready to make a, a bit of a quip about wondering if there are any teams in Liverpool who, who are uh, switching play quite so much between their fullbacks and getting such attacking output from those in the fullback positions but uh, no it's been brilliant to chat to you thank you for filling us in on, on all things Rangers and Steven Gerrard and hope to have you back on the pod at some point soon no pleasure thanks for having me looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. 
See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right, two teams to go, both in Spain. We're going to start with the side at the top of La Liga, a team whose name is regularly repurposed for witty five-a-side or fancy football league team name, Real So So Bad. But this season, Sociedad are anything but 20 points from their nine league games so far this campaign. I should say... Atletico actually have a better points per game record, but they've played two games fewer. But Sociedad have got the points on the board. Michael Cox, how are Real Sociedad winning these football matches from a tactical perspective? What can you tell me about them? Well, they're playing very attractive football, I would say. They're dominating possession. They've scored the most goals in the league, although, like you say, Atletico do have two uh, games in hand. I would point to their recent 4-1 win over Huesca as a good example of how they're playing. Now, it's worth pointing out that Huesca are... Uh, currently bottom of the table, they haven't won so far this season, so they're you know, not a great side. But nevertheless, this was a good example of how they played. So that game was uh, was 4-1 and featured two goals from Oyarzabal, plays on the left and is coming inside and is scoring lots of goals. And then it featured two assists from David Silva. And, you know, we all know about David Silva and how influential he was at Manchester City over the course of a decade. And I don't think it's unfair to say that he's been really their key player. I think he's just lifted the side in terms of their passing combinations I dare say off the pitch he's having a big impact as well um, so yeah it's a it's a very David Silva-esque side I would say lots of uh, good passing in dangerous positions and incisive through balls when needed they've been really good to watch so far so it's good to see them at the top of the league and Tom who or what stands out from the numbers when it comes to Real Sociedad I guess the main thing is that the this doesn't really look like a, a flash in the pan. They've got the the fourth best attack and the second best defence in terms of expected goals, which to me says that this is definitely a, a side that is performing sustainably and are around where they, they should be based on kind of the performances they've had so far. But they're just so steely defensively. They're conceding just 2.9 passes on average into their penalty area per game, which is, you know, amongst all, uh, the lowest numbers in Europe. Um but I was kind of looking at some numbers around pressing and trying to quantify kind of whether or how active Sociedad are without the ball. Um, and I looked at kind of the proportion of opposition touches in the, the middle and attacking third, which are pressed. And Sociedad have the kind of third highest figure by that. Uh, and I think just ahead of them um, are Ibar and Getafe, who are sides who definitely have far less possession as well. So again, they're, they're a side that which is, I guess we've come to come to see more and more of in, in Europe in recent seasons is a side which has a lot of the ball, but also does look to, to counter press and press when without it. But yeah, I, uh, like Michael, I'm really enjoying David Silva's performances this season he's averaging uh, you know average per game is creating four um, four shots which is, is a really high number his expected assist tally is um, you know 90 95th percentile really really high up there in Europe for a player who is I think 30 34 so it's just great that they they're still getting that level of production from a an attacking player when they've lost uh, Martin Odegaard in the summer back to Real Madrid but overall this is a really young squad as well and if they can kind of keep up this consistency and keep their their key players then maybe we see uh, you know if if Barcelona and Real Madrid in the midst of fairly long rebuilds, I guess, could we see that Sociedad kind of established themselves as one of the newer, bigger sides in Spain? David Silva ageing like a fine wine, I guess, in, in Basque terms. That is a Chacoli wine, a very delicious, sort of slightly carbonated, sparkling, dry white wine. It's uh, it's fantastic. And, and I, I would just say, and this has got nothing to do with football, but if and when we're allowed to travel again, 
a pod trip to Sociedad to watch this side uh, and to enjoy the pincho bars of uh, of San Sebastian, I think is, is certainly on the agenda if we've got the budget. So I'm just going to put the call in early for that if you guys are up for it. Um, well, I, I mean, what, you know, while we're on that, I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with their performance because there's no fans in. But what they've done with that stadium at Sociedad is absolutely incredible. So I went to the Anoeta in, I think, 2012, when it was a kind of old school European stadium with a big running track around it. And over the course of, I think, four years, they transformed it into a really kind of modern looking stadium, no running track that stands really close to the pitch. And when I saw it on TV for the first time, I couldn't believe it was the same stadium. So well done to them, because I hate grounds with a running track. You know, going to the Olympic Stadium at West Ham is horrible, but they've completely solved their problems, you know, in the same site. So, yeah, I would love to go to them uh, and see what the new ground is like. Of course, Xabi Alonso's there as well. He's the manager of their B team. Maybe we could get Xabi and David Silva around a table and just talk about passing or, or something like that. Um, <laughs> look, far be it for me to take anything away from this Sociedad start to the season. It does feel like quite good timing, doesn't it, uh, Michael? Potentially, this is obviously a, a big statement, but potentially a little like Leicester when they won the title in fifteen sixteen. It, it feels like the general, the usual title cha challengers in La Liga are looking fairly weak this season. Is this a good time for Sociedad to be good, in a sense? Yeah, I think you're right. In fairness, I think I have thought similar the last couple of seasons with Real and Barca. I think they've dropped from the level of the last decade, if you like. But yeah, probably more so than ever. So yeah, it could be very good timing. And uh, I mean, what, I, what I've been encouraged by them is that they're not dependent upon a regular starting 11. They've used 26 players so far, a lot of kids, as Tom says. I think only the goalkeepers started all nine games. They've really rotated throughout the course of the first few weeks of the season. And again, maybe a little bit like Southampton, they're a side who I, I think might be able to sustain it longer than some of the top sides. They are in European competition, it's worth pointing out. But I think that the the use of the the squad has been really impressive so far for a side who obviously aren't traditionally one of the big boys, don't have a really, really deep squad, but certainly they've, they've made an effort to rotate. So, yeah, I think it could be a good uh, a good season for Real Sociedad. And uh, I would suggest, you know, to preempt your, your uh, you asking for prediction, I would go top four. I think probably the big three will rise and will be in the top three places. But yeah, I think Real Sociedad could be back in the Champions League. And Oyarzabal's stock is going to continue to rise it, it feels a little like one of those sort of throwback romantic Basque football stories already and of course the story might change but Yarthabal is, is 23 he's already played over 200 times for Real Sociedad last season he got a double double uh, that is double figures for goals and an assist in La Liga so he's hit double figures for goals in three consecutive seasons. He's already on six from nine this year. I mean, it's the sort of player that by now, you know, anecdotally, I would have, uh, based on, on recent history in Spanish football, would have expected him to get a move to a Real Madrid or a Barcelona by now, but but still there. And, and if Sociedad are going to do well this season, then as I say, his stock is going to continue to rise. Uh, let's talk about one of their rivals uh, in the early part of this season. That is Villarreal, who are just below them in the table on 18 points from nine games. Uh, Michael, I want to hear a little about Villarreal, their start to the season, their style of play, dare I say it, uh, whatever stands out about this side who are potentially overachieving somewhat so far this season. Yeah, I think it's been a 
you know, a very promising start to their campaign. Unai Emery is their manager now. We know about him from his experience with Arsenal. Obviously, back in Spain is is doing a little bit better, I think it's fair to say. Maybe the interesting thing about them is they signed both Danny Parejo and, and Francis Coquelin from Valencia, just down the coast. I mean, a real shambles what's happening in Valencia. And I think they were basically selling quite a lot of very good players. And Danny Parejo in particular, I think he's one of the best midfielders in Europe and has been for a few years now, albeit with some dips of form over the last couple of years. And up front as well, they've they've got a couple of really good players. I mean, Moreno on, on the flank has... Uh, Scored 18 goals last season, the most of any Spaniard in La Liga. I think he's always exciting to watch. And then up front, they've got Paco Acacer, who has had a couple of mixed experiences at big clubs, but I think he's just a, a quite a reliable, solid player. Again, a kind of classic number nine to go back to what we were saying about Sassuolo, who stays in the box and makes things happen. And uh, yeah, I, I'm less convinced by them than I am by Real Sociedad, but uh, I must say I've got a lot of affection for Villarreal and their past great teams. So whenever they're doing well, I always quite like to see their name up near the top of the league table. Uh, and Warville, can I ask you to do a Warville on Villarreal? What are you saying about the yellow submarine? Yeah, I mean, obviously second of the table at the moment and their, their expected goals for and against pits them as the, the fifth best side in La Liga. So again, the numbers do look really, really solid under Emery so far. Um, perhaps, you know, I don't think that second is realistic, but um, similar to Southampton, you know, Six, I mean, maybe even better than, than Southampton would uh, in the Premier League. I think a top six finish is, is potentially on the cards. Um, but they're doing it a, a kind of different way to Sociedad and, and the other teams. It seems that um, Villarreal don't press that high. They don't seem that aggressive when out of possession. Uh, and only Elche and um, Cadiz kind of have a lower um, rate of, of essentially pressuring the ball when out of possession. One note on Cadiz, which I think is, is probably hopefully the best stat of the pod. They are sixth in La Liga at the moment, but they're averaging 29% possession a game. So it's very much just uh, get the ball, hit it as hard as you can upfield uh, and push everyone up um, behind it. So um, yeah, they're, they're probably a team to um, to watch if you're up for a, um, a, a Spanish Burnley, let's say. But yeah, I'm, I very much am enjoying um, Preo's performances. He's a, he's always been kind of an elite ball progressor in his in his time in um, at Valencia, and that's kind of continued at Villarreal. Um, and then Purvis Stipunan as well as a, a fullback whom they signed from Watford, um, one of their kind of classic Pozzo family players who never featured for Watford but left the club for around £15 million in the summer um, and he's had some really um, enjoyable attacking performances as well so far this season. I think throw into the mix um, Samuel Chukweze and Pau Torres and there's a pretty kind of good mix of youth uh, and experience mm. with this this Villarreal side. Yeah there is quite a recognisable experienced spine I wonder if that will will help them guard against you know spells of poor form and, and help them certainly in, in, in psychological in mentality terms in terms of the team's character you know if there is a, a potential surprise title bid on the cards here Sergio Asenjo in goal Raul Albiol still going at the heart of defence Ibora and Parejo you've mentioned and Alcacer as, as well uh, it's an interesting squad they've got uh, Michael you've kind of already said that you le you'd lean towards Real Sociedad not just as a, a destination for our team bonding but also <laughs> for footballing reasons uh, so if you had to pick one to finish over the other it's the the team from the Basque country I think so I think they look uh, just more consistent than Villarreal I mean Villarreal have had a gentle start to the season in terms of their fixtures their next two games are at home to Real Madrid and then after that it is against Real Sociedad so that could be first against second I would fancy Real Sociedad to come out 
uh, on top in that one. But uh, yeah, I think that that could potentially be a really interesting game. I kind of hope that Villarreal do beat Real Madrid just so we go into a game that's first against second in La Liga and doesn't feature any of Atletico, Real and Barcelona because it's not often that that happens. Well, thank you both. And thanks to Jordan Campbell as well, who joined us for our segment on Rangers. I've really enjoyed this look at five of Europe's early overachievers. And, you know, we haven't had too long on 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 any of the sides we've scratched the surface and hopefully uncovered some some interesting aspects of these sides that you guys can go and and, and look at further that's the listeners not you guys Michael and Tom because I know you've got a lot of work to do but thank you uh, do let us know what you thought about this podcast you can get in touch with us on Twitter please do make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast which you can listen to for free on any podcast platform but like all of the other athletic podcasts you can listen ad free if you're a subscriber of the Athletic. You can listen either on the site, on your computer, or on the app, on a phone or a tablet. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking will see you offered a £1 a week subscription to The Athletic. These guys are producing, as always, as are their colleagues. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And do join us again next week. We'll be looking at something new, something interesting, hopefully, on this The Zonal Marking Podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thank you.